You need to have real change in multiple sectors in substantial ways between now and 2030 for the U.S. to have a chance of putting that target in reach. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, I'm excited to share a discussion with John Larson at the Rhodium Group and Joseph Micah, director of the CSIS Energy Program. John is a partner with the Rhodium Group where he leads their research on the U.S. energy sector and climate policy. Today, John and Joseph will look at what actions we need to see from Congress, the executive branch, and subnational leaders to reach the Biden administration's 2030 target to cut net greenhouse gas emissions by 50% by 2030. The policy pathways for the United States are complicated and need to be comprehensive. And John and Joseph take an in-depth look at what we might see over the next couple of years. I'll turn it over to Joseph now to lead the discussion. Welcome, John. I wanted to invite you on the podcast today to talk about this report, which was released over the fall that, that Rodian did, trying to understand how we would meet the president's goal for greenhouse gas emissions. Is at, In the run-up to COP, the president announced a, a goal for the U.S., that we would reduce emissions 50% by, by 2030 against the baseline, which I believe is 2005. You know, these, these are grand pronouncements. It's meant to demonstrate ambition. And, and then it falls to analysts to figure out, okay, well, what does that actually mean? And, and your group is one of the only ones I think has done a really detailed and comprehensive look at that question. Maybe we could start with the, a brief description of the exercise you did and the findings you arrived at. Is it possible for us to get to that goal? And then we can talk a little bit more about what it would take for us to do it. Uh, sounds good, Joseph. Uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be back on. So yeah, we released a report in October called Pathways to Paris. And you know, Rodin Group, we're an independent research firm. Our goal in all of these types of analyses to, is to call it like we see it. And uh, in this instance, we have been getting, since the president set the target of 50 to 52% below 05 levels by 2030, We've been getting a lot of questions about like, well, is it doable? How do you do it? What's the most important thing, right? Like all those questions. And we have um, spent a lot of time focusing on US emissions trends uh, in the near medium term. We, we put out an analysis every year called Taking Stock, which is just like, where is the US going without new action as an effort to just remind everybody <laughs> of you know, the progress or lack thereof on an annual basis um, in, here in America. And when we put out that report back in July this year, we found that the US is currently on track for 17 to 25% below 05 levels by 2030. So that, that is if no additional action by anybody after, I think we cut it off at late May of 2020, uh, 2021. That is the range of where emissions may be 10 years out. And that range is, um, you know, the future's uncertain, so we're not putting a point estimate out there. And that range represents a few key variables, not necessarily all of them, but the ones that we think are most important, one of which is how uh, the, the cost and performance of new clean energy technologies. If EV batteries are cheaper, emissions are lower, if wind and solar are cheaper, emissions are lower. And if it's if those costs are tech costs are higher, then emissions would be higher. Fossil fuel prices, which for a while was kind of boring to talk about until recently. But you know, if, if fossil fuel prices are higher, all else equal, emissions are lower because you know, you just 
people will consume less of something when it's more expensive and, and vice versa, right? Like if, if, if fuel prices are cheaper, then it's harder, you know, we will have higher emissions. And then last is carbon removal from natural systems. So, you know, there's lots of ways to talk about this. There's carbon dioxide removal or CDR, the traditional really wonky, boring greenhouse gas inventory parlance is land use, land use change and forestry or LULUCF. But basically the range by 2030 reflects a world where either the US land use sink natural carbon sequestration is, is largely static from here on out, or it declines by about a couple hundred million metric tons by 2030. And by the way, historically, the, the, the sink is, is significant. It's like 600, 700, 800 million metric tons of CO2 that, that is removed from the atmosphere every year from US land forest farms. And, you know, so that's, it's equal in magnitude to any of the other big emitting sectors. So it does matter to, to this conversation. So like, let's pause for a second and talk about where we are, right? So talking about these things in terms of percentages is helpful because it's easy to understand and you don't have to use the term million metric tons, but we also need to understand like what has been happening recently. One of the arguments we've seen arise just in the last few months as the Congress is debating the, the climate portions of the president's uh, social spending and budget plan is the idea of you know, whether or not the energy transition is already proceeding quickly enough or, or at a pace that is acceptable. And that the US has been this like massive performer or has been outperforming other countries in terms of its like gross emissions reductions against the baseline that we choose. Let's spend a second like, you know, 17 to 25% reduction by 2030. When I look at the charts in your report, doesn't really show much progress from today. So is the baseline that you're operating from one where without significant policy change or some big technological upheaval, we've kind of yielded the emissions reductions that we would expect to see out of things like the shell revolution and you still then awaiting vehicle electrification, I suppose? Yeah, it's a great question. So, and you're right, like uh, since 2005, the US, US net greenhouse gas emissions have gotten down to about 20% below a five levels in, in 2020, which is pretty good for, you know, kind of phoning it in on carbon dioxide reduction policy in America. But a 20% cut in 15 years, if you project that out, that's not going to get us to the 2030 target, right? Like, just, just think about that for a second. Um, but then, you know, to your question, where are all these new trends around inflation and the economic recovery and very substantial and quick increase in fossil fuel prices right now, we actually see emissions bumping back up in 2021 and 22, which is natural when a economic recoveries tend to lead to higher emissions year on year and actually uh, relatively high natural gas prices. We're right around five bucks in MMBTU for 2021, where in 2020 it was 250 or 225. So, you know, doubling that, that directly influences the competitive economics of different generators in the electric power market, which is kind of one of the big swing sectors for emissions. So with higher gas prices, what that means is, sure, renewables are more competitive, but so are all those existing coal plants that are in the system. Uh, coal is going to see a 20% year-on-year rebound in generation in 2021. That's probably going to plateau in 2022. But all that is to say emissions go up in the COVID recovery, post-COVID recovery. But then we actually do see in, in our current policy projections, at least through mid-decade, emissions come back down. Um, and what that is, is fossil fuel prices kind of settle down, gas prices come back down, tens of gigawatts of coal plant capacity 
slated for retirement by mid-decade, all that's going to go. So in some ways, you know, the downward trend in emissions will snap back into place, at least in the mid-decade. But you're right, 17 to 25% is not some massive continued shift. And what we actually see is things, things kind of settle down and flatten out by mid-2020 and stay in that flat zone. So I think that it's fair to say we get a few more easy points on the board in the next few years, and then after that, not much else is going to change. And it's worth remembering, emissions matter from an absolute basis, right? Like we need total tons to go down. In the meantime, the nation is growing. More people are living here and every new person has some amount of CO2 attached to them. And the economy is growing, right? And so flat is actually winning from a carbon intensity perspective, right? Like we, we are actually like doing more with less carbon. And, and you know, there are more people here emitting less per capita. That is still structurally good. But to, to, to the larger point, none of this is good enough for the U.S. to do its fair share or some amount towards contributing to reducing global emissions. You know, and that's where I think the Biden administration target is kind of remarkable in, in the sense that I don't quite know what their process was for getting to 50 to 52. At the same time, you look at any of the IPCC reports of late, and this is the, the 50 to 52 is right, right in the range of what major economies need to do to do their their share of a global response that gets the world on track for for net zero sometime by mid-century. That is not what I expected. You know, I mean it's it 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 is it is hard. It is very ambitious. And we cannot count on current market trends to be enough to get there. And furthermore, you know, and I, I think you know you've definitely heard some members of Congress and others say, you know, wind and solar are doing great. So why do we need to do more? And the answer is we're just not doing it fast enough. There are more bright spots in the energy system today than I have ever seen in my you know, professional career. Uh, and what I mean, you know, technology is starting to take off. People are finding new business models that have lower emissions. There's like a lot of cool things to get excited about. None of it is big enough or fast enough to be uh, commensurate with the challenge. And this is why policy matters. Yeah. So the energy modeling task is a challenging one. You've got to make a set of assumptions and projections across economic growth, technology development, public policy implementation. Your paper finds that the president's goal, which I agree was sort of inverted from the broader climate goal of maintaining global warming below two degrees or C with a you know, target you know, intent to stay toward 1.5, hitting net zero emissions from the US on the earlier side of the global community. From a, from a sort of modeling perspective, can you help us understand what a, what a world of 50% less emissions in 2030 looks like? Power sector, transportation, buildings, land management, and, and, the, and the forestry carbon sink or agricultural carbon sinks. What are the big levers when you find, okay, this is like geophysically possible or technologically possible that you see coming? Sure. Uh, maybe just just a quick step in between before I answer that. It's it's worth you know when we're talking about tons, it's worth kind of talking about how many tons we need to get to that world. And so you know when you're at seventeen to twenty five percent below O five in twenty thirty, and you're trying to get to fifty to fifty two, right? We quantified a an emissions gap between those two ranges of one point seven to two point three billion tons. So so in that year, the U.S. has to be that much lower to get to the target. Um, minimum 1.7, if everything goes great on the on the market trends and land use trends, um, 2.3 if it doesn't. And just to put that in perspective, 1.7 
billion is all the emissions from every from the entire transportation sector today. 2.3 is all the emissions from all of agriculture and all of electric power today. So basically, we're talking about zeroing out whole sectors from a, from an emissions perspective in nine years. Just just to state the challenge, you know, in in total terms. And then to answer your question directly, Joseph, there first thing we found is that there is no one sector that just solves this that gets to the target. You need to have real change in multiple sectors at, in, in substantial ways between now and 2030 for the US to have a chance of putting that target in reach. The big one is electric power. And it's true that the most exciting market trends and progress have happened in the electric power sector already. It's because that's where there's lots of different commercially available affordable alternatives to fossil fuels and a sector that is largely rational and price-based. And, uh, and so competition does what it does when you have a lot of cheap stuff that can push out less uh, competitive incumbent fuels like coal and, uh, and to some degree natural gas. And what, what we found is that you know, by 2030, electric power sector emissions are floating around roughly half a billion tons, 500 million, which just, just for reference, uh, in 2020, they were around 1.4 billion. So almost a billion ton change in a decade in the electric power and and then to paint that picture more you know more than half of all electric generation is from renewable sources in 2030 more than half so and that that is inclusive of hydro but the big the big contributors are wind and solar and nuclear is about 20% of generation as it is today and that is different than current policy we actually see under current policy nukes are more like 15% because they are expensive and in decline themselves coal in 2020 there was about 220 gigawatts of coal on the system. In 2030, in the Pathways to Paris outcomes, we're talking about around 90 gigawatts left, but the actual um, generation share is much lower. So it's like one to 3% of all electricity is coming from coal in 2030 compared to say around, I think 20% projected for this year. So that that's a big shift. And then the rest is natural gas. I think the market share declines a little by 2030, but is largely flat, around floating around 30% of total generation. I'm not sure if all of that adds up to 100, but I'm doing it from my head. Uh, but we're close. Uh, that gives you a sense. And I think the most important thing to note about that is that is not a radically different mix than today. The majority of that generation is dispatchable. And then in the meantime, wind and solar are, are now some of the dominant sources of energy in the electric system. And on top of that, battery storage is now uh, playing a big role to help balance those new renewables. There's uh, at least 50 gigawatts of new battery storage on the system by then. But you know, we're talking about like roughly 75-80% clean generation, roughly 80% cut in emissions from 2005 in the electric power sector. So that's the big one, right? But then uh, looking at the other sectors, we find that the other three big contributors are industry, transportation, and land use and carbon removal. The question we face is not, will we get to 50% emissions reductions at this time? The question is, what does it look like when we do? Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And so assuming there are 10 years or more of electric vehicle tax credits at $7,500 a vehicle, we see electric vehicles take off compared to current policy in a substantial way. So like in 2030, more than half of all the vehicles sold in America in 2030 are electric, like pushing like 55% of sales. And that ramps up really fast from today. And we also assume there's some EPA regulations that would drive that change too. But uh, we also think that would be easier for EPA to do that if there's you know $7,500 vehicle for compliance. And so that's roughly 15 to 20% of all the cars on the road 
are electric. Editorially speaking, is it is it right to look at this result and to sort of view it from two ends? On, on the one hand, this is a substantial reduction in greenhouse gas emissions coming from the U.S. and a significant acceleration of the trends that we've already observed. But on the other hand, it's an it can be accomplished with an energy system that is not remarkably different from the one we have today within what it would now be the next, you know, it's, we're recording at the end of December in 2021. So there's eight years to, to accomplish that. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I mean, we can, we can talk about industry in the same vein. Like, so we don't see any, nothing shutting down. Like you still see a huge build out of new liquefied natural gas, import export terminals, new petrochemical plants, um, all the things that are projected to happen in America anyway, um, and actually are really big emitters, big drivers of industrial emissions between assumed EPA regulations and the 45Q tax credit extension for carbon capture and the Build Back Better bill. We see, you know, most of that new capacity and a lot of the existing facilities strapping on carbon capture. So from an energy consumption perspective, almost nothing changes. But now, now you have the CO2 infrastructure and build out. So... Let's talk about policy because it, it it hangs over this conversation in some remarkable ways. There are three buckets, as I read the report, of policy interventions that you find are necessary in your model to achieve a, an emissions reduction uh, consistent with the U.S. pledge. Congressional, federal agency action, and then what I'm going to call subnational action. Let's take each one in turn. What's the policy baseline in your model? And then we've mentioned the Build Back Better Act, the president and Senate and Democrats plan for social spending and climate action. That is, as we're recording, slightly on the ropes, but still potentially something that could pass into law. It's a basket of tax credits for various clean energy technologies. Is that what you consider to be congressional action when you're drawing these scenarios? Yeah, we deliberately did not dream up what Congress should do to solve climate change. We we instead considered what Congress had right in front of its face uh, here. So, so there's there's two big packages there. There's the infrastructure package that is, an, is law, and then the Build Back Better bill. And we actually see both of those together kind of working in tandem. So, you know, you've got infrastructure does the kind of supply side innovation, get a lot of these new technologies to the starting line for commercial deployment, um, as well as enabling build out of the infrastructure you're going to need to manage the transition, CO2 pipelines, uh, transmission. And then um, looking at Build Back Better, that's the, the commercial deployment market demand pr priming side of the package. And, and one could argue, well, do you really need, you know, back to your earlier question, do you really need tax credits for stuff that's already winning, like wind and solar? And the answer is, we're not moving, it's not winning fast enough. So we need to keep moving with that. And on the Build Back Better side, at least 10 years of wind and solar tax credits at full value with flexibility to choose an investment tax credit or a production tax credit, and also critically direct pay. So you don't need tax liability to monetize the credit. I know that sounds like the wonkiest thing in the world, but, uh, Last year, in 2020 and in 2021, um, we have record renewable build-out happening in America, which is fabulous news. By the way, it's still still half of what you need on an annual average basis to completely decarbonize the power sector. Just back to the point, things aren't moving fast enough, but records are good. But also what is what is noted is that the actual tax equity market, this whole like murky pool of money, usually involving very large banks that actually finance the projects and help monetize the tax credits and the current tax code regime, their uh, developers are running out of investors. So, so the actual pool of money is finite and people are starting to hit up against constraints. 
And so uh, direct pay is really important in that instance for two reasons. One, if you're going to double renewables with these new tax credits, which is what we found in, in our analysis, you, can, you should not expect those financiers to have the tax appetite, appetite enough, uh, sufficient to fully support all of that build out. So you need to find something else to do, right? So direct pay basically says the developer can just take the credit as, as a payment instead of um, having to go through legal hoops and financial structures to get a bank to, to get a piece of that action. The other reason why that's important is the Build Back Better bill opens up tax credits to all these other new technologies, transmission, battery storage, carbon capture, and industrial carbon, uh, carbon reductions. And so there's probably going to be a lot more demand for tax equity. And so direct pay both deals with that issue for all those other technologies, but also just kind of Makes, makes space a lot more projects to get money. And that is also really important. If we're, if we're really going to, we've had a lot of luck in the power sector. We need to have luck in all these sectors. Like I said, it's like transport, industry, all of that. Oh, we, need, we need a big emission reductions in the next decade to get to the target. And so the Build Back Better components really, we see, really play a, a foundational role in building on top of the infrastructure investments to really get things to scale. Um, in and of itself, it's not enough. Are, are you able, you know, you're not evaluating these things on the margin, right? So it's not like you can say, oh, well, we, we find an emissions gap of 1.7 to 2.3 billion metric tons. 30% of that is covered by Build Back Better. Like the, the, the way that you're inverting this scenario, everything has to happen at once. Yes, that's right. So what has to happen from the federal agencies? I mean, as it stands, EPA has regulatory authority over greenhouse gases for mobile and stationary sources. EPA has struggled to use that authority to actually reduce emissions, with the exception of maybe the, the auto sector. What are the big blocks there that, that you see the federal agencies having to do? And, and maybe there's other federal actions that, that are also important as part of this like big scenario. So one reason why we don't break things down by bucket is because turns out they're all interrelated, right? So like the, the answer, what Build Back Better does is different if everything else happens than if you just did Build Back Better by itself. Why I tee that up and for, to respond to your question is this, like, first of all, we, we see EPA playing the primary role in the uh, executive action side of things. It's not a long list of rules, but it's some pretty big ticket items. Uh, EPA just yesterday finalized new fuel economy standards through 2026, or I think technically they're greenhouse gas emission standards for vehicles. But we see you know, EPA is going to have to go right away and set the standards through 2030. So, so point of order, EPA set a, a standard for 2026 for light duty fleet of 161 grams per mile. Your modeling shows that for 2030 in the joint action case, you'd like to see 90 grams per mile. Is that enough out of EPA? Let's, let's say we think that's a plausible target for EPA to shoot for. That, that would still be improvement rates year on year that are higher than EPA has ever done. So you know, we tried to be mindful of recent historical norms around ambitions and not, you know, I mean, if, if the answer to getting to 50 to 52 is like crazy targets across the board for every reg, then nobody, then it's not valuable, right? Like, so we, we tried to be in the sweet spot of like, here, here's what we think is technically feasible, but also plausible from a, from a rulemaking perspective. So not, so, I mean, EPA could go further. That's not supposed to be a floor for action, um, or ceiling for action. They could, they could almost certainly go further, but I actually think, uh, any any ambitious fuel economy rule or greenhouse gas standard rule from EPA is going to be easier to pursue if every vehicle in America gets seventy five hundred dollars 
uh, in electric vehicle tax credits, right? And 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 not only that, it's not not just from a selling point, but like EPA could actually consider that those tax incentives as part of their cost assessment of these rules, and that should justify more ambition, right? And then when they do this, the the regulatory impact analysis, and so let's show what the consumer costs would be in the OEM compliance costs, they'll say, hey, what do you know? Like seventy five bucks really changes. $7,500 really changes the calculus here. And consumers are like, no worse off from more ambition, right? Like we haven't done that math yet, but like there, there was a plausible pathway for more ambition with Build Back Better than with that. I'm always really intrigued by this kind of modeling. And I have a question for you as a modeler. Your, your model has cost curves in it, right? So sort of people make consumer choices informed by the regulatory context and the price context of this of the stuff that they can buy. I don't think of an auto dealership as a place to make rational decisions. It is not. So, how does the model think about or treat or how do, how do you how do you look at the results of this model and think about that as as a complex decision made by a bunch of individuals as opposed to a like uh, welfare maximizing decision agent? that's unconcerned about the color, the kind of undercoating, doesn't get tired after an hour and a half of dealing with a salesperson, uh, or has cultural attachments to fossil fuels. Right. So we use the National Energy Modeling System, which is uh, it's our version of EIA's energy system model with uh, Energy Information Administration that you know puts out their annual energy outlook every year. And their transportation module for light-duty vehicle sales actually tries to get at the irrationality. So rather than just say, is an electric vehicle cost effective on a total ownership cost basis compared to an ICE or not in any given year? And if it is, everybody buys them, right? Which is like, if this is cheaper, everybody should do it. It's, a no, it's an economic no-brainer, right? Instead, there's a distribution of outcomes based on like basically sales research. So, you know, the rational choice might be what resonates. Certain fraction of user, of consumers, really likes big truck beds. And so all else equal, you know, if there's not an EV option or the EV option happens to be more expensive for that type of vehicle, or they, they will value that that attribute more. There's like all these other things. And then on top of that, even, even in the cold-hearted cost assessment, consumers discount any energy savings after like the first two years in the model. So basically like, like you're already putting, it's not really thumbs on the scale against EVs, but what you're really doing there, like people, People don't go to the lot, as you said, and think I am going over the 10 year ownership of my vehicle. I shall save like $500 a year if I choose this one over that one. Instead, they're looking at, well, gas prices are high. So maybe, maybe I should buy something with a higher fuel economy rating, maybe, right? Like, or, or I don't care about gas prices or, you know, like that. It's like a much more basic kind of gut decision. Um, and we do try to capture that. And, and which is why, actually, when I said earlier, we get to like 55% EV sales. By 2030, EVs are mostly cost competitive in every model type in the model. But we still don't see it running the table on the market because of all these uh, capturing all these other dynamics. That, I think, gets at this a little bit. I mean, you know, it, it's probably not perfect. I would definitely say that for sure. But we, you know, the model does try to get at some of these um, mercurial consumer preference issues. 
And then the last piece here where I think there's something really important going on and also in, in interesting interactions with the tax incentives, particularly for carbon capture and storage, is regulation of industry, right? This is, a, this is a sector that we haven't really started a regulatory conversation about in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, relatively diverse, more elements, more source categories than the power sector and, and light duty and heavy duty vehicles. What's the regulatory outlook there in your scenario? So it's actually, it's similar to electric power, and we, we should give a hat tip to that at some point as we're talking about regulations, but it's um, Section 111 of the Clean Air Act, so new source and existing source performance standards. You know, EPA has a lot of discretion under the Act to what it chooses to regulate and when, you know, and how, in what sequence. We took a stab at what we thought would be plausible there, and what we did was basically, well, new source performance standards are only good for the things that are getting built into the future, so let's... EPA should look at the fastest growing industrial subsectors first. That is LNG terminals and um, you know liquefied natural gas and petrochemical facilities. There's like roughly I'm going to get it wrong, but like it's it's over 100 million metric tons of new emissions under current policy from those two sectors. So then, the, so the next question EPA has to say is after what are we going to regulate? What standard are we going to hold them to? And we do assume, especially for new sources, a 90% capture at the point source. And, you know, again, without Build Back Better, it's a little hard to envision that because with Build Back Better, 45Q carbon capture tax credit is extended through 20, you, you can commence construction before 2031 and be eligible for the credit. Right now it's 2026. So basically for the full decade after EPA might take regulatory action, there would be a tax credit available to help with compliance. And it bumps the value of that credit up to $85 a ton. And we found that maybe that doesn't completely cover all of the cost of compliance for every source every time, but it's easily over half. So again, you know, industry has largely been untouched by regs, usually because of cost competitiveness, international competitiveness, and just like the politics of, but if the treasury is subsidizing compliance by at least half, maybe more so, for all of those sources, you start to see a world where this doesn't seem impossible. I do want to say really quick, you have to get at existing sources too to get the real ton. So um, there are existing LNG terminals in America that would need to put on carbon capture at some point. Same with petrochemical facilities with some efficiency and process improvements too. And then the other big one in industry that, that we see getting tackled is refineries. It turns into a lot of carbon capture, like over 300 megatons, million tons of carbon capture capacity by 2030, where we have less than 10 today. Most of that is co-located. So it sounds like a big number. It's a big build out. Most of it is in places like the Gulf Coast. And so from, an, again, if you have siting and permitting and uh, financing of CO2 pipelines and all that stuff in the infrastructure package available, you can start to see a world where that's plausible, where, okay, we just need to build a few really big pipelines to get the CO2 out of Houston and New Orleans and get it to the aquifers probably within the same state, right? And so you can start to see a world where this seems doable. And part of, part of the goal here what, you know, was, back to your first question, so like, this is what it could look like. You know, like this is this is the beginning of really decarbonizing industry through a combination of, of incentives and regulation. The third bucket yep. is if the passing of this huge climate package as part of the social spending bill 
and then bolstering that or or accentuating it with a new and existing source regulations across a variety of sectors is like subnational action, yep. right? Which I think is also apparently pretty necessary in your move. What is the picture or the outlook for subnational action in a uh, path to Paris scenario? Yeah, so it's worth just starting with thinking about what states have done traditionally and historically in this space. And, and most of the time, it's been leadership on clean energy in the electric power sector. There's some efficiency stuff too, some transportation stuff. You know, California, light duty vehicle rules have moved the needle in the market some. But the big one is, you know, California has a 100% clean electric target. So do many other states now. Other states have, you know, 50% renewables by 2030, which again, it's like much in line with what we see for, for the nation. And in our Pathways to Paris work, we find that it's all well and good for, for states to continue to up that ambition in the electric power sector. But what really does the lift in that sector is, is tax credits and EPA regs. So I'm not trying to say states don't do that. I'm just saying that, I mean, it's, it's a good backstop and hedge if EPA can't do it or the tax credits don't do enough, right? Um, but where, where the additive tons happen from states is actually a little bit different than where they've added tons in the past. And it's mostly transportation. And so this is in line with what states actually have the authority are, are better at, you know, like, I mean, it, uh, for lack of a better way to think about it, states are closer to the ground, right? And so they, they actually make the transportation and urban planning choices that ultimately uh, determine, you know, whether or not you're sitting in traffic for that many more minutes every day, and or what your transit options are, and and all of the, you know, where where the next subdivision is going to get built, and is it near transit, and all that stuff, right? And so we found that states can leverage the infrastructure bill investment money in roads and transit if they if they target that to more climate friendly development that should reduce vehicle mile traveled in those states by 2030. The other big, big thing to note is we don't assume every state does this. We assume only uh, quote unquote leadership states do. We assumed any of the current U.S. Climate Alliance. And so half the states doing smart transportation investments actually yields like over 100 million metric tons of emission reductions. And one interesting thing about that that, that I think is, is another reason why it's kind of like an outsized impact is that helps reduce emissions from all the cars, right? EVs only reduces emissions from the amount of cars that are no longer gas, right? Which is a fraction of the vehicles on the market. This state action, at least in those 25 states that do it in our, in our scenario, reduces emissions from every car on the road in that state um, on average, right, BMT. And that's why you see like pretty big chunk of reductions just from that. And then the other big one is greater uptake of low carbon fuel standards. I mentioned earlier, New Mexico is looking at one. Uh, so is Massachusetts. So is Minnesota. There, there's, there's actually some, some momentum around this policy choice. California has shown that it is driving towards, you know, reductions in fossil fuel based liquid fuels in the transportation sector through the policy. And so, you know, the emission reductions here are not you're burning less gasoline in a car. It's that the, the life cycle emissions associated with gasoline is going down, right? All the energy it takes to make that fuel, all the feedstocks going in. We see that being a big driver emission reductions too, in part, again, because, you know, if you're at like 15, 20% of all vehicles on the road being electric, this policy actually gets at the other 80, 
percent and and reduces you know the emissions associated with that fuel use. That's a really interesting point because the picture I get when I read this report is that for the policy choices that are sort of immediately available to decision makers at the federal level, within the agencies, and at the state level, there is a little bit of complementarity. You're not saying at every level you need to do sort of duplicative effort, right? You have a uh, fire hosing of support for clean energy technology deployment coming from the tax credits in the Build Back Better Act. You've got a pretty significant effort from the federal agencies for regulating downward emissions. And then at the state level, you've got both advancements of, as you say, sort of smart infrastructure investment, reducing VMT against a growing population and a growing economy is not a trivial thing to do. But but you're not asking every level of government to do exactly the same thing. In a scenario where you wish there was a change in focus across those different ones, like Congress, federal agencies, and states, from what you've seen over the last few years, did your modeling reveal that maybe this maybe strategy should be different? Maybe the order of operations should be different for any of those folks? Yeah, I mean, so you know, this kind of exercise, there's there's a lot of policies you could choose, or or and where and who does them. We really try to constrain our options, which is not necessarily to say the world has constrained options, but like to things that everybody is already has already done or is doing, right? So that's really important for listeners to know. There are authorities in the Clean Air Act that have not been used before that could be used, right? Like there are legal scholars that say Section 115, which is the big international agreement implementation chunk, could impose an economy-wide carbon trade, carbon trading system on all of America. And that would be a completely different story than what we just talked about, right, for, for EPA regulation. I And we didn't go there because EPA has never chosen to use it before and has signaled no likelihood of using it anytime soon. So we didn't want to say the weight of the target is 115, right? Like we wanted to say, here are the things that EPA has traditionally done, and here are the things they could do. So I think I think actually like the answer to your question is a little tricky given our approach because the way I maybe think about it is um, there is still some overlap across these different buckets, and part of that is just hedging your bets. Like if if the tax you know tax credits are inherently uncertain in their outcome because energy markets could completely awry compared to what we assumed, and that could be good for renewables deployment with tax credits, or it might be bad. We don't know. But EPA regulating every fossil fuel-fired power plant for CO2 emission reductions at the same time sets a certain amount of backstop certainty for emission reductions. Same with states upping their clean energy targets, right? Some of that overlap is worth it, given we, we haven't gotten there yet. But there, there's a lot of uncertainty here around policy and politics that could change some of these scenarios substantially. And, you know, some duplication is good. The transportation story for states, for subnationals is one that I think is actually kind of unconventional. If federal action actually gets most of that done anyway, you know, all of a sudden pivoting to transportation gets really important, right? Like for those those marginal tons. You know, another thing we didn't dive into too much in the report, but I think is actually quite a fascinating thing from a political economy perspective is go back to carbon capture. Many states now have taken over CO2 site siting and permitting authority from the EPA. These are not the states you would call climate leaders. Um, these are this is North Dakota, it's Wyoming. I think uh, Louisiana is going for it now. But guess what? The industrial outcomes in our scenarios hinge on being able to get a permit and shoving CO two under the ground, right? Like, and and if if Wyoming wants to take that CO two and get paid for it, like that's really good and allows states that have traditionally not been leading 
to find a way to play and maybe even help transition their entire energy system away from fossil fuel dependence over, over the long run. I'm not trying to say that's going to happen by 2030. So I think the thing I would say is that everybody should be getting more creative about exploring policy op- opportunities outside of where they've been playing. Because first of all, in particular industry, everybody says it's the hardest sector to decarbonize. That's not due to lack of technology. Is there's International competitiveness is a huge problem. You don't want to disadvantage the steel industry in America, but through mitigation of, of CO2. But also it's, it's that there's, there's really not a lot of obvious policy levers. We kept it pretty simple. There's new source and existing source performance standards. Carbon capture exists. But I, I, I welcome anybody to say, well, you know, if states can start to figure out a clean product standard or buy clean on steroids or maybe just direct government investment in retrofitting facilities for low carbon production. Like there's lots to get some points on the board. Um, and we didn't consider that. Yeah, actually, I think one of the key lines that I wanted to visit with you, it comes from from your report, quote, advocates, investors, academics, think tank scholars, and others should redouble their efforts to construct the next wave of base hit and home run policies. Doing so will increase the likelihood of accelerated action, end quote. And I think that that's a, a call to action that is like a little subtly delivered, but I'm, I'm interested in diving in with you as we close our conversation in part because you know we're think tank scholars, but also because if you look at the scenario you've built, it's pretty hard to accomplish. Yes. Build Back Better and this in this series of tax credits is not law, and we're not sure that it will be law. In the, in the near future. The, the package of regulations that you've talked about writing, having those be implemented over the next 10 years, I think at this moment would require you to make some fairly strong political assumptions or us to witness some fairly large political changes. Like there's, only, there's two or three administrations that you might see over that time that are going to get to write those rules. Each of them gets to define their own priority. Traditionally, Republican administrations haven't been interested in promulgating these kinds of rules certainly not uh, ambitious ones. And you're asking, you know, state level policymakers to kind of crank the dial up to 100 across 25 leadership states. This is before we get to the corporate stuff. So as a modeler, what do you wish you had in the toolkit to add to this scenario? I think there are obvious answers. Federal carbon price might be one, but what else do you wish you had in the in the sort of quiver of available choices, even if it's a non-specific tool, where's there a nail to be knocked down? It's a great question. I think um, maybe I'll I'll answer it in, in here are the sectors I'm most worried about and building. Buildings emissions are flat in not only our current policy forecast, but in our pathways to Paris scenarios. Some advocates have told us like, what the hell's going on there? Like that doesn't make any sense. You, you actually say you model all these efficiency investments and things like that. And we do. I mean, when I say basically fat emissions go down by like 20 million metric tons, which is like less than 5% um, over the decade. It is because uh, there is no mainstream, obvious electrification policy for buildings, period. And the primary tool for dealing with building emissions has always been energy efficiency, and it's always been fuel neutral. So what I mean by that is it is perfectly politically okay to replace a mediocre natural gas furnace with a pretty good natural gas furnace. And that that's a win from an emissions perspective. Whereas if your electric power sector is now 80% less carbon intensive by 2030 than it was in 2005, and you take that natural gas furnace and swap it out for electric heat pumps, the emission reduction is like 10x compared to, to that gas example, right? But right now there is no federal regulatory lever federal, uh, explicit federal incentives 
or even in most states where which states have led on building efficiency policy for, for decades, there's no obvious state policy to drive that. And so I would welcome somebody to come out with the RPS equivalent of building electrification and just have everybody do it fast. That's a big one. You know, the, 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 there's like gas hookup bans that are starting to proliferate in some municipalities. Uh, New York just passed one, for example. Those do things. That is one way to do it. I don't know if that's scalable to like multiple state level and then multiple states. I feel like the politics around it are tricky. Then back in industry, I do think some sort of broad, flexible, technology neutral emission reduction requirement on producers, on manufacturers, would probably drive a lot of deployment and innovation in new processes and cleaner ways to make the same stuff. I actually do think there's a lot of potential there. I think most manufacturers haven't done it because A, there's no market demand for cleanly produced things yet. And also why spend a little bit extra when I can just keep doing the same thing, right? Like there's a lot of inertia in industrial production and finding a way to set that signal appropriately, I think could really change investment decisions pretty quickly and maybe even lead to retrofitting of a lot of facilities. But Again, EPA doesn't have the authority to do that. And you probably need, if you're talking about federal policy, you need a congressional action to do that, set a, set a standard. But those are two examples where I think you could get a lot more tons or complement the kinds of tons that we talked about in our report and maybe even expand that to other sectors. You know, like there's no reason why an electrification policy that works in buildings couldn't also work in industry, for example. And then the clean product standard is basically a, a low carbon fuel standard applied to products, right? So there's there's some similarities there. I, I'd agree, you know, it would be lovely if we had a carbon price by now. That would certainly make all of this easier. If everybody had to spend 25 bucks a ton or 50 bucks a ton on carbon and you had the tax credits and build back better, you'd have a very different energy system before you even talk about federal regulations. But we're not there. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I'll compliment you. I think that the work that you've done is really, it scratched an itch that I've always had when I look at sort of modeling studies that say this result is is possible in terms of emissions and you get important information out in terms of you know cost imposed and, and other things but there's always this gap between well what are the policies that are actually imaginable that's a judgment but you've defined imaginable and people can argue with it if they want to and you you end up with a picture of a in this case with the tools that we have available a very comprehensive high effort set of initiatives, in my opinion, where success, as you say, is, is not even necessarily guaranteed. And it shows you the, the challenge of the goal. But if you accept that mid-century decarbonization is the target, that leads to some, some inconvenient truths, if you might say. Let me close with one last final thing. I asked you earlier what changed in 2030 in the energy system in a world where the U.S. had met this climate goal. What doesn't change? Two things that, that caught my eye in your modeling, but I'm interested if there's anything I missed. One was household electricity spending doesn't particularly change in your, in your scenario. Understanding why would be interesting. And two is that US oil and gas production by and large doesn't change. Maybe gas goes down a little bit. Coal is cut in half. One of our big energy stories is that the US has, is now a, a huge producer and a net exporter. And it seems like that doesn't change in your modeling. Yeah, so well, already mentioned buildings, largely that story doesn't change. So that's another thing uh, to note. On fuel production, yeah, we were actually pretty surprised. Coal production 
gets cut in half because the only real market for coal in America is the electric power sector. And you know, if you're down to one to three percent of generation, there's just less demand. So that's intuitive, right? But oil production stays pretty much the same in 2030 compared to where it would be with no, no, without meeting the target. And gas goes down by about 10%. And what's happening there is, you know, I mentioned EVs are only 15 to 20% of the cars on the road, right? Like, so, so there's still a substantial amount of petroleum demand in the traditional places where people use it that hasn't really changed, even with, you know, increases in low carbon fuels. And then coupled with that is the now, now we have a two-way market for oil in America, right, with the export ban lifted. And so sometimes U.S. producers are the cheapest producer and they, they, they take that oil out of the ground and they put it to other markets. One thing we didn't show in the report, but it's worth noting, is imports go down. So total petroleum demand is actually reduced in America. Is that produce, but production doesn't really change. And I think that's notable for, for folks who really care about energy security. We are, through decarbonization, reducing reliance on energy imports, and that's notable. And then on the gas side, it's a similar dynamic to oil, except that because of electric power decarbonization and industrial decarbonization, total demand for gas goes down enough to put pressure on, on production. And even with the build out of LNG terminals, I should say gas production is still higher in 2030 compared to today in those scenarios, but it, it is lower than it would be without these actions. So that, that's one place. And then um, the other point you made was on household energy bills. So electric bills stay flat. To me, that's a win to have emissions cut by 80% by 2030 compared to 05 with no impact on an electricity cost is, is kind of remarkable. You always hear everybody say any kind of heavy handed of government is going to increase costs on consumers. And we found electric bills stay flat. So that's a combination of things that federal subsidies for new clean energy means every electron's a little cheaper than it would have been. There are spending in Build Back Better and in the infrastructure bill on energy efficiency. That reduces household electric demand compared to current policy. So your bill, even if electric prices go up, your bill might still stay flat because you're using less electricity. And then lastly, that downward pressure on gas demand actually yields a slow, a slightly lower wholesale gas price. The average household saves 500 bucks by 2030 in total energy costs. Do you plan an update for 2023? We'll, we'll see. We do plan to like in 2022 and 2023, start tracking individual policy actions at the federal level. So, you know, if, if EPA go has a new go at power plants, we're going to do a bunch of work to just inform what are the options on the table? What is that going to do? But also then how does this comport with what we model, like in Pathways to Paris? Is this in line with, with aggressive reductions or not? And how does this add up to progress to the target? We're going to plan to do some of that benchmarking and tracking. And we'll be looking at, you know, new methane rules and vehicle standards. And then, you know, do they or don't they regulate industry? We'll look at that too. We'll also be updating our current policy projections every year for any new action. So, you know, for example, should should New Mexico do that low carbon fuel standard? We'll put that in. There's a lot of like little pieces that do add up over time. Right. Well, thank you so much for your time, for your insights and for your hard work. Thanks to John and Joseph for that look at what it will take to move the dial on U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. There is a link in our bio to the Rhodium Group report, the Pathways to Paris, a policy assessment for the 2030 U.S. climate target. As always, you can find more episodes of Energy 360 on our website or wherever you listen to podcasts. For updates, follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. And thanks for listening.